All right. Good morning. Good morning. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 19. And while you turn there, um, if you look on the screen, we do have a couple of quick housekeeping items and announcements. The first one is, uh, this coming Wednesday, we have Festival. Uh, Festival, on the one hand, yeah, sure, it is a Halloween alternative for, for some of us. And, and actually, the entire church is invited. Yeah, you know, whether you can bring your kids or you, some certain cell groups are, are dressing up non-scary costumes. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, our church, we're, we're trying to be on mission uh, and see what God has for us, yeah, globally, but even locally. And so this year, it's something really exciting that we're partnering with the Braille in the Unified School District and all the proceeds uh, that we collect, it'll kind of go for something where we can uh, serve maybe underprivileged children right in our backyard. And so it's a great opportunity. So this coming Wednesday, I hope to see you from five to eight. The second announcement, if you look on the screen, is baptism. Baptism, uh, it's an external celebration and declaration, a public one of an inner reality that God works in our hearts, uh, the miracle of salvation. And so if you call yourself a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, but you have not publicly proclaimed this and professed this, we'd love to celebrate with you as a church. And so uh, you can register online for that. All right? Okay. Well, you know, uh, this morning, uh, we kind of launched into a new series for our church called Real Conversations. For the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, specific topics, things like, you know, disability, privilege, death and disease. And we'll be diving into these things uh, for the purpose of seeing uh, biblical truths uh, in light of all these cultural opinions. But maybe this morning, before we uh, kind of launch into this series, maybe we need to have a first prior conversation before we get into our real conversation series. Uh, and the first is this, you know, uh, the mission of the church, the role of the church is not to have a public opinion on every single trending topic in the world. That is not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is not to give a hot take on every single issue. Uh, the mission of the church, biblically, is to worship Jesus our King and to adore him by uh, participating in the great commission and charge that he's given to the church to make disciples of all the nations, amen? That is the biblical role of the church. However, but secondarily, and precisely because that's the mandate of the church, it's occasionally really, really helpful to stop and to take another further step in being equipped and trained as disciples, as followers of Jesus, uh, to have the mind of Christ, to think biblically, if disciple-making is really the mandate of the church, so that we become fully formed followers of Jesus, right? So that uh, in whatever situation or topic or context that we may find ourselves in, that we know how to pursue the will of God with truth and wisdom for the love of God and for the love of neighbor, wherever we may be. And so, uh, you know, this morning, if if you're uh, like, it's not the dominant, it's not healthy for the dominant uh, kind of diet of the church to only be preaching on just relevant hot topics on a Sunday morning. That's probably not the best diet. But at the same time, because we're pursuing the meat and potatoes of discipleship, it's occasionally helpful to stop and pause and to see how the Bible speaks into all these different spheres and corners so that we might be better formed disciples. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you're one of those kind of like, you're nervous, and you're like, oh my gosh, are we going to become one of those churches that stop preaching the Bible but we talk about everything but the Bible? No, no. But you are invited, however, to see how biblical truth, to see how the gospel which is center infiltrates every single corner and part of our lives and beyond. But on the flip side, if you're, if you're sitting here and you're like, finally, 
finally a series that's keeping things real, uh, you're also invited to see how real the biblical mission of the church is. Because in God's perspective, it's, it's, it's a huge reality. And so we're all invited. And so personally, I'm really excited that our church is walking through this because at the end of the day, it's not about just keeping things fresh per se, but it, it's for the sake of discipleship. This morning, uh, I do have the privilege of launching into the series and uh, talking about the topic of homosexuality. And, you know, just from the preacher's perspective, if I could be honest, right off the bat, I can almost feel um, all of us kind of positioning ourselves, posturing ourselves to kind of listen a certain way, right? Like, here's what I mean. Like, for some of us, I, I can almost feel uh, you, you're almost taking this position of like, well, I mean, he, like you're, he better talk about, you know, the authority of the scriptures. I mean, you're going to call it out for what it is, right? And so I, I can almost feel some of us posturing that way. Others of us, I can almost feel you positioning yourself in a way where you're like, you're, you are going to talk about grace and love, right? You better, I mean, I already wrote out the email, right? And so I'm ready to press send. It's already in the drafts. And so I can almost feel our, uh, uh, this morning, this uh, inclination for us to not really listen, but almost seek out confirmation bias. And I just want to let everyone know off the bat, I, I understand. I understand and I sympathize. I, I empathize because this topic, on the one hand, uh, just the way that it's been talked about in the church, generally speaking, it, it's been talked with such polarization. And I think part of that is because the church is still learning and, and growing in how we understand and how we should talk about this topic. And so often when something is in process, polarization happens because it, we just kind of want a quick default position to feel secure, to feel safe. We, we, we don't really know how to think. But secondarily, not only has this topic been unfortunately been polarized, but secondarily, this topic is personal. See, see for a lot of us, you actually know someone. You, you have a good friend who is a homosexual. Or, or you have a coworker that you're really close to, or maybe a family member, and, and they experience same-sex attraction. But maybe even more so, there might be someone in your immediate family, maybe your child, maybe your spouse, that experiences same-sex attraction. In fact, someone here, you, you yourself may experience that. And so this morning, I think there's a sense in which we can't help but, but really just listen because this topic is so personal for us. And so right off the bat, just, just to kind of try to bring all of us to a shared uh, moment, I, I would like to kind of open up by sharing a, a brief personal story. Uh, you know, about 10 years ago, so I, I have this aunt, and um, she has this bad habit of talking about me to everyone that I don't know. Uh, and, uh, you know, 10 years ago, she was working uh, kind of in the, in the entertainment industry, and so she had uh, this, this, this really good friend and uh, he was a gay man, and, and you know, he was in a gay relationship for about 30 years, an older man, right? They're in their, like, 60s. And she would talk about um, me to them, unbeknownst to me. And so, like, almost 10 years ago when my wife and I got married, uh, you know, my aunt was so excited that she would talk about me. And they said, you know, congratulations. We'd love to, if they're ever free, invite them over, and, you know, we can all have dinner together. And so my aunt took up their offer seriously. And so she asked us, like, hey, do you guys want to have dinner? And we were like... It's not like we have three kids. It's not like I have an infant. Free food, let's go, right? And so, so we went over for dinner, and you know, they, they just greeted us with amazing hospitality. We got there, and they're like, we made these hors d'oeuvres. And I was like, honey, what's an hors d'oeuvre? Right? Is it a vegetable? What is this? Right? First time I've ever had an hors d'oeuvre, right? I'm used to appetizer, onion rings. That, that's about as fancy as I got. And they just lavished us and treated us, and it was just an amazing time. Uh, they told us so many funny stories. It was a great opportunity to get to know them. 
Uh, but kind of towards the end of the dinner, you know, when, you know, when the coffee and the desserts come out, that's when the real conversation starts, right? And they kind of knew that, you know, I, I, we were part of a church and I was in seminary and I was kind of pursuing this pastoral route. And so um, this one man, he, uh, without prompting, he actually started to share his own life story. He shared how he grew up in the church. And he shared how he, he loved his church experience, that his, his parents were, were dedicated and devoted members of the church. But he also shared that during his adolescent years, he began to feel uh, same attraction. And so his prayer during that time was he pleaded with God uh, to take away those feelings. And he starts to get very emotional and wiping away his tears, he, he said, um, I prayed to God and I pleaded with him for years. But, it, but God never did anything. And he shared how he still misses the church, how growing up in the church, that was some of the best times of his life. And I sat and we listened and we thanked him for sharing. You know, uh, for the next few minutes, and I I do kind of want to be as brief as possible uh, so that we can have the panel time and give more time for that. But I share that story because uh, for the next few minutes, as I just try to kind of create this template for maybe how we as the church can think about this topic and how we can talk about it, I'd like to do so with a spirit and tone as if that man, as if that couple were here in this room, sitting right here in the front row listening. I'd like to do so with a a spirit and tone as if some of my former youth students who experienced same-sex attraction when I was a, a youth pastor, as if they were also in this room sitting in the front row next to them but I'd also like to do so with a spirit and tone as as if the Lord Jesus Christ were here, because he is. But as if he were here sitting in the front row next to them as well. And and so I'd like to invite all of us to listen with a spirit and tone where we we honor God-imaged people, but at the same time, we honor uh, the the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, all right? So I'd like to briefly make uh, make three points. Uh, Here's the first one for uh, the purposes of, our, of, of this morning. The first one is, uh, the church is invited to a humility for greater awareness. The church is invited to a humility for greater awareness. You know, I wonder if it may be helpful for us as Christians to maybe start kind of acknowledging and admitting that maybe we don't know a lot about this topic, about same-sex attraction, as much as we think or even as much as we ought to. See, some of us, we kind of grew up in an ethos where whenever this topic was discussed, we were given swift and quick answers and simplistic answers. And so what's happened is, uh, even though decades have passed, years have passed, whenever we engage with someone in this conversation, we we immediately kind of default back into those answers as if we've cornered the market on truth on this issue. And so, but what ends up happening is we, we actually kind of look a little ignorant and we, we lose a little bit of credibility. And so I wonder if maybe we need to start by admitting, gosh, we, we don't really know that much as much as we think we do or as much as we ought to. Like here are a couple of quick examples. Um, one, you know, even the way that we use the term homosexuality. We, we kind of use that term homosexuality as like this giant umbrella term, uh, whether someone is, right, uh, whether there's a gay couple or whether there's someone who experiences same-sex attraction, we just kind of group everyone together. But according to counselor and psychologist uh, Mark Yarhouse, uh, he actually delineates and explains that there's it's a little bit more nuance than that. In fact, there's three tiers or three uh, groups of how this is experienced. So really quickly, the first one, the first tier, the first group is what's known as uh, attraction. 
This is where same-sex attraction, SSA, right? It's when someone uh, has a moment or they experience this momentary feeling where they feel attracted to someone of the same sex or the same gender. And so this person is, is kind of confused. Like, they're not sure where that came from. So attraction. The second tier or the sec- second grouping and distinction according to your house is what's known as orientation. And orientation is not just a momentary feeling, but it's more of a prolonged experience. So for this person, this person is not just, is not just confused about why they feel this way, but they're actually, they're, they struggle with it. That's orientation. The third uh, kind of tier or grouping or distinction uh, is what's known as identification. And identification is where a person identifies uh, as in, in their gay identity. This is where the person is not confused, This is where the person is not uh, struggling, but this person has accepted that this is who they are. That this is who they are and this is their uh, identity. And so it's not just something to be accepted, but it's actually something to be celebrated because uh, because this is who I am. uh, I'm gonna express my personal uh, identity uh, by championing this identity, right? This is who they are. And so for example, when Christians, when when we use this, this popular catchphrase like, oh, hate the sin, but love the sinner, for the person who's, who identifies themselves as gay, that's actually very offensive. Because for them, they're saying, no, no, you don't understand. Like, what I do is what I am. I do that because that's who I am. It's an expression of my individuality. So even the way that we use the term homosexuality, there are greater distinctions in, in terms. It's helpful to know that. Uh, another example of how we can grow in this is, for example, the way that we talk about uh, and try to explain what causes this experience and feelings of same-sex attraction in people. There have been various theories, but every single theory as a weakness. So for example, like in the church, uh, the, the, the big popular theory is, is choice, right? That's what a lot of us grew up hearing, right? Uh, people experience this because it's a, it's a choice. It's a sinful decision someone makes out of the, the wickedness and rebellion of their heart. And, and I understand that, where, where that's coming from. But actually, if you talk to someone who experiences uh, same-sex attraction, a lot of them will say, actually, I never ever recall making a conscious decision. I don't know where this came from. And in fact, we may even need to more deeply consider why someone, especially up, up until recently more today, but why would someone, what would motivate someone to make that decision? Especially for someone who actually grew up in the church, for someone who loves the church, for someone who knows where the church stands, for someone who knows that this, this may be an awkward and painful discussion, what would motivate someone to make that decision? We, we, we don't know. Other uh, have proposed theories like it's nurture. Right? It, it's our surrounding, it's an environment. And so they say, uh, oh, you know, someone grew up in a, in a rough household or they had some sort of sexual experience when they were younger. But actually a lot of people with same-sex attraction, they actually grew up in very healthy homes. They experienced committed relationships. Others, they say, um, you know, it's biological. Someone will say, I'm genetically uh, predisposed to have same-sex attraction. But according to the American Psychological Association, there, there's no verifiable studies that demonstrate this. So the point is, we, we, we don't know. And so we're all invited to humility. Humility. I wonder if it's helpful for us as Christians to sometimes just say to ourselves and to others, you know, to be honest, I don't know, but I would like to learn. And I would like to grow more in knowledge of how this is understood. So first, the church is invited to a humility for greater awareness. But secondly, and simultaneously, the church is um, invited to faithfulness. Invited to faithfulness. You know, if someone were to ask you, um, hey, so what does the Bible say about homosexuality? What would you say? What's the answer that you would give? You know, as Christians, we shouldn't have to feel afraid or apologetic uh, for saying what God says. But what exactly did God say about this topic? 
And in fact, if, if Jesus were here and we asked him, how do you think he would give the answer? How would he answer this issue? If you could take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew 19, we're going to read our passage for today. Matthew 19, verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these, uh, when, when he had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Now, verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, he made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. If you're wondering why I used a passage on divorce to have a this conversation on homosexuality, uh, it's because of the way that Jesus answers this question. You notice how when the Pharisees, they, they come to, G- to Jesus to test him and they're like, so Jesus, divorce, unlawful divorce. What do you think? Did you notice Jesus does not directly answer the question about divorce? Rather, he backs up, he pans out, and he talks about something greater, the ethic of marriage itself. In other words, Jesus backs up to not only just talk about what ought not to be, but that which ought to be. The design, the template. Why does he do this? I believe it's because Jesus understands that ultimately anything that we want to talk about, any ought not, it only becomes truly crystallized and properly understood and rightfully understood, wisely understood in light of the ought. Like, let me give you a quick uh, illustration. Like, you know, my children, uh, pretend I, I always gave them this, this command, right? Like, don't get bad grades. Don't get bad grades. Asian theology, right? Don't get bad grades. Don't get bad grades, right? Now, let's say they had, they had, they had small groups, siblings, small group about this. They memorized this. They took exams. But, you know, to be honest, they're not going to really understand why, why that's important and what it really means until I back up and give them the ought, The ought being, I want them to be productive human beings who bless the world as trained people who are learned and learners. But in order for that to happen, I want them to become disciplined people. But in order for that to happen, I want them to be surrounded by people who are also learned and disciplined. You notice how immediately when I back up and demonstrate what ought to be, then what ought not to be becomes very clear. That's why when the Pharisees say, bring up the issue of what ought not, divorce, Jesus backs up and says, here's what ought, marriage. And from the beginning, marriage was designed to be the sacred union, this one flesh. He paints that beautiful picture for them. Now, why? Why does does the one flesh picture union matter? For two reasons. First, it matters because it demonstrates God's heart. It's amazing that God, even pre-fall, he creates this beautiful template for human flourishing. Remember, marriage was given in the context of human flourishing. So certainly God would not bring something that would lessen human flourishing. He would only want to increase and amplify human flourishing. So it reveals God's heart. But secondarily, it not only reveals God's heart, but it reveals God's plan. How does it reveal God's plan? It reveals his plan because when we think about the one flesh union of marriage, we know that marriage in and of itself is not the ultimate goal. 
We know that in fact that marriage, when we back up and pan out and see the wider story of redemption, marriage is actually a parable, a picture, a metaphor, an illustration of a greater union, a greater marriage between Christ and the church. It's supposed to display this amazing picture of Christ dying for sinners and loving them. And so you notice how when we, when we kind of back out and see God's heart, see God's plan, and all that he's doing unfolding in the gospel picture, when we see the big picture of the ought, the ought not of unlawful divorce suddenly becomes clear. I bring this up because I think when we talk about homosexuality, we should follow the same guiding principle. See, I don't think Jesus, if we asked him, so what does the Bible say? I don't think he would start by saying, okay, well, so in Genesis 19, there's a story about Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't know if he would start there. I think he would back up and paint the beautiful picture of redemptive history of all that God is unfolding in the gospel. You know what the gospel says? The gospel says that there is this miraculous union of like opposites. Where on the one hand, you have have Jesus who is divine and perfect and flawless. But on the other hand, you have humans, sinful Broken. Oh, sure, one is made in the image of God, but the other one is not only the image of God, but God, like opposites. But the gospel says that these like opposites are brought together in union. Now, we already established the principle that what displays this one union is the earthly union, one union of marriage. But how is this, this metaphor of marriage, this one flesh union, how is that achieved? And how that's achieved is a template of also human-like opposites coming together and joining together in male and female. That, isn't that what Jesus says in verse 4 and 5? See, the key word is therefore. See, it's therefore what unites God created the male and female in verse 4 and one flesh. In other words, it's male and female, therefore, that creates and it achieves this one flesh union. So much like how two different and distinct elements like oxygen and hydrogen, this is the only chemistry I know. This is chemistry, right? Okay. Oxygen and hydrogen, it it comes together to create water, H2O. In the same way, it's male and female. It's that which comes together to create this distinct, unique, one flesh union, which does not only exist for itself, but it's ultimately a metaphor and a picture of a greater union of like opposites, which reveals the heart of God and the plan of God. Suddenly it becomes clear. You know, I love what uh, Eve Eve, uh, Tushnet in an article uh, in The Atlantic uh, entitled, I'm Gay, But I'm Not Switching to a Church That Supports Gay Marriage. I love what she says. So she's part of uh, the Catholic Church. She experiences uh, same-sex attraction, but she's celibate. And she makes this exact point. She writes, and I quote, The Bible sets apart sexual difference as a uniquely profound form of difference. Marriage as the union of man and woman. It represents communion with the other like opposite in a way which makes it an especially powerful image of the way we can commune with the God who remains other. So in light of this grand grand picture of redemptive history, which reveals God's heart for human goodness and and, and human flourishing. 
And this great plan in which God is working out the gospel, the union of like opposites, in light of this great picture, yeah, does, does the, do practices of homosexuality, does it become more clear? Yeah, it, it becomes clear. It breaks God's heart. It does. Yeah, it is sin. It is. Because it doesn't capture that one flesh union which displays the picture of God's heart and God's plan. But it breaks his heart just like how unlawful divorce breaks his heart. Just like how a heterosexual marriage in which the man does not love his wife sacrificially like Christ loved the church breaks his heart. Just like how a heterosexual marriage in which a wife is unwilling to submit to her husband out of reverence for Christ is also sin. Just like how a dating couple that has sex outside of marriage, that is also sin and breaks his heart. Just like how pornography breaks his heart. Why? Because it does not point to God's heart for human flourishing. And it doesn't reveal the picture of God's plan of amazing union. See, I think the Christian message, it's not that, that same-sex couples cannot be in love. They can be in love. Of course, feelings can be true and, and strong. It's not even that same-sex couples can't be in a committed relationship. Like the couple I had dinner with, they've been together for 30 years. That sounds like a committed relationship. The issue is not the strength of feelings. The issue is not even the commitment of relationship. The issue is that rare, unique, distinct, one flesh union, which is brought together by male and female, which paints a picture of a different, greater union of like opposites. So the church is invited to faithfulness. We're invited to faithfully see the grand story of God's a redemptive picture and therefore see every topic in light of that picture. But this brings us to our third point, and finally, and quickly, the church is invited to generosity. The church is invited to generosity by sharing a beautiful Jesus and a complete gospel. A beautiful Jesus and a complete gospel. You know what breaks my heart about uh, that that dinner account? Um, Is that that man in his understanding of what the Christian faith was, in in, in his understanding of the gospel and the greatest thing that God could offer to him was that he would be in, quote unquote, cured of his same-sex attractions. And that because that that didn't happen, it was as if God failed him, as if Christianity failed him, and as if he failed himself and he failed God. But but is is um, is that really truly God's heart in terms of the greatest hope of the gospel? Like, would that, was that God's greatest desire for him? In fact, when we pull back again of what ought and see the redemptive story of, of what God is doing, in fact, that hope of, you know, same-sex attraction being converted into some sort of heterosexual desires, that's actually a very small goal in light of what God may actually want. See, what God desires is not just the pursuit of heterosexual desires as if that's the goal. No, his desire is something so much greater. It's the pursuit of of holiness. It's the pursuit of becoming more like Jesus, who himself never got married, never had sex, but he was fully human in the most full way. See, See, the message of Christianity is not that when you get saved or when you believe the gospel, all of our temptations and struggles go away. But whether we experience same-sex attraction, whether we experience sinful heterosexual desires, pride, envy, jealousy, anger, sadness, uh, sinful sadness, whatever it might be, that we do not find just mere relief through God 
in a snap of a finger changing that, but rather by us having the power through the Holy Spirit because of the grace of God to take up our cross and walk with him who will carry us into glory. Isn't that the core of Christianity? The core of Christianity is not that we somehow improve ourselves or that we become improved. It's that we deny ourselves. It's that we forego self-expression for God-expression. Oh, isn't that costly? It's very costly. You know what the cost is? Yourself. Myself. But you know what the gain is? Christ. You gain Christ. Relationship with him. You get to walk with him and to know him. And that is the great hope of the gospel message. You're invited to a beautiful Jesus and that's what the church can invite anyone for. Generosity. Generously inviting others by sharing a beautiful Jesus and a complete gospel. You know, I can talk about this, you know, to be honest, like for the rest of the day. This could be easily 500 minutes. Uh, But I think rather than me simply talking about it uh, with principles and theory, I think sometimes it's more helpful for us to see a, a picture of this in real life. And, you know, I'm, I'm so excited this morning because uh, we're going to have a quick panel and it, it, we're going to be so encouraged. Uh, and Roman, uh, who's on staff at our church, and Becky, they're going to come up and share. And Roman's going to introduce Becky. But could we, as, as Living Hope, give a warm welcome for Roman and Becky Cook? Let's welcome them. Good morning, Living Hope. Uh, so thankful for the privilege to be up here before you today, and um, I interview my good friend Becca here. We actually met uh, when we were both doing our master's degree at Talbot Seminary, and um, a little biography about Beckett. He not only went to seminary, um, and he's currently a deacon at Reality LA Church in Hollywood, but he's also a production designer in the fashion world and has been involved in Hollywood industry for many, many years. He also does public speaking at churches, universities, uh, conferences, including the solo conference we hosted here at our church earlier this year on the topic of homosexuality. So truly a renaissance man. <laughs> um, and out of the many things he does, another thing I do want to talk about is that he is, has written a memoir, which will be coming out um, in the summer and fall of 2019 next year. It's titled A Change of Affection, A Gay Man's Incredible Story of Redemption, being published by Harper Collins. And I had the privilege of reading early drafts of this book, and I could tell each and every one of you that it was truly touching. It was truly inspiring. Um, It did move me literally to tears as I was reading it. And Hmm. as you can just see this title, it's an an incredible title, and you know there's an even greater story behind it. So Beckett, if you could just start off by telling us about yourself. Tell us about your roots and your journey to where you are today. Well, it's a long and winding road, Roman. Um, So I... I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and I grew up in a, a Catholic family, youngest of eight kids. Uh, my parents were crazy. So I, I, um, but at a very early age in my life, I started to experience same-sex attraction and didn't know where it came from, as Steve said, and what, why it was happening. And it was, it was kind of a, a shock to or It was a surprise to me. And uh, I just kind of hid that part. I knew it was according to my family and according to the Catholic Church and according to um, my culture around me. I knew that it was considered wrong. So I obviously hid it and I didn't talk about it with anyone. 
So I just had this kind of internal, I had these feelings that were in, that I internalized and um, didn't talk about it. And so it was, it was a strange sensation to have as a kid. It's, it's odd when, you, when that happens to you as a child, for anyone who's been through that or for family members who have kids, it's a very strange uh, experience. And, but as I got older and into high school, I ended up becoming best friends with a, a gay guy in high school. I went to an all-boys Catholic Jesuit school in Dallas, and um, we ended up coming out to each other, we, uh, which was kind of a, a pivotal moment for me because I was finally able to express who I was, or to express my feelings, really. It wasn't who I was at that point, but I, expressed my, I was able to express my feelings to him, and we, ex- we explored gay culture in Dallas. Like, we went to gay bars. I was 15 years old. I was 14, 15, 16, going out to gay bars, which sounds really dangerous. <laughs> it really probably was, but, um, at, but at the time, it was just... But I, I went to clubs. I went, you know, I, we, we went out all the time. And I made straight A's in high school, so my parents didn't really care. And plus, I was the youngest of eight, so they didn't, they didn't really keep up with what I was doing. I would just, you know, come home at five in the morning and they didn't notice. But, um, <laughs> so I, I, uh, ex- explored gay life and I, and I really, when I, the first time I went to a gay bar or to a club, I, I, I remember walking in and I just saw all these different people. There were straight people, gay people, there were like, you know, drag queens and all this stuff. And I walked in and I was like, oh, like I'm finally, these are my people. Like, I felt just, like, so at home with him. I always felt, like, kind of like a, a misfit internally, even though externally I wasn't. I was, so, I was very social in, in school, and um, I dated girls in high school, and, but it was all kind of fake, you know. So, and then after high school, I went off to college. Same thing. I ended up befriending someone who was gay. We came out to each other in college. It was, like, this whole process. And then we came out to each other, and... The same thing. I had this confidant, this best friend in in college that I could, it could tell. You know, we could we could talk about everything. And I wasn't out in college. I, I still wasn't prepared to to. I wasn't fully I prepared to identify as a gay man in college. I still was kind of like this. I don't know if this is who I am. And um, and then it wasn't until I moved after college. I moved to Tokyo with my best friend from college for a year and. He and invited his friend from Dallas to visit us and uh, for a week, and we had a, this tiny little apartment in Tokyo, the size of this table and um, <laughs> and so this guy comes from Dallas and Mark, his name is Mark, and he came and we we ended up falling in love, and um, he stayed with us for a week and that 's when I was like, okay, this is definitely who I am like that was when it, I fully identified as a gay man, I came out to my family, I came out to my friends, I came out to everybody. And, uh, and then after Tokyo, I moved to, cut to fast forward to law, I moved to Los Angeles. Uh, and I, when I moved to LA, I, I became friends with a group of people who were, some were gay, some were straight, again, some, but there were all this group of very ambitious, very um, uh, talented people who uh, were all in, involved in Hollywood in terms of writing, directing, acting, producing, and, 
and we became all like this group of best, best friends. And a lot of them ended up becoming famous and, you know, big, huge. They kind of run the industry now um, in, in, in Hollywood. And, and so, I, but during that whole time in my 20s in L.A., I mean, I was just having the time of my life. I was going out to parties. I was meeting everyone. I was going to Oscars, the Emmys, the Golden Globes, to all the after parties. To, I was going to, like, you know, I would wind up at Prince's house, Prince the singer, you know, and, like, walking. And then I showed up to his house, and he just, there's this, like, stage in his backyard, and he ends up singing for three hours until three in the morning. It was just like surreal moments like that and like having dinner with Meryl Streep and hanging out with Ariana Huffington at her house, you know, just like these weird things. And this was kind of a, a constant thing. I would go to premieres all the time, movie premieres. And, and I had, so I just like, I was really on this, like, I loved it. I loved my life. I thought, like, I, I thought this is it. Like, this is what life is about, having these experiences and, and um, finding, you know, finding love, you know, having relationships. And so that's what we all pursued. We all wanted to have these experiences, be successful in our career, be, you know, achieve something, make our mark on this world, and, like, find true love. And that's what we all sought and looked at, uh, looked for. And then, um, and then as the years went by, the, that the law of diminishing returns started to set in and I started to feel less and less satisfied by all those things. And, and then I had this kind of moment in Paris at Fashion Week in Paris. I used to go to the Fashion Week in New York and Paris all the time. Uh, and, and so I was in Paris in 2009, March of 2009, the end of February and early March. And um, I uh, was... At, I went to a bunch of the fashion shows. I went to the after parties, and and I was at one party in particular. And I had this. This was a very another turning point in my life. And I, I just was at this party. Everyone in the fashion world's there. Kanye West is there. Like it's everyone's dancing um, and having a ball. And I'm just sit, and I was sitting at a table, kind of like this, like above the crowd on this little platform area. And I just was like is that all there is? Like, and I, I didn't know what to do because I thought, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? Because I can't keep doing this. I can't keep going to parties. And this isn't satisfying. It's not fulfilling anymore. And I knew I could never, I knew God was never an option because I was gay. So I knew like Christian, Christianity was never an option for me. So that was off the table. And, um, so I was like, well, what am I going to do? Because I, what's the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? You know, why am I here? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? Like that's, you know, it, that question was always in me, but I, it, it really came to a head that night in Paris. And I was like, what the heck am I going to do for the rest of my life? Because this isn't working anymore. Cut to, I get back to L.A., and a fast forward six months, I'm at a coffee shop in Silver Lake in L.A. And I see a group of people next to me. My best friend and I are there. And we see a group of people with Bibles on the table. They have um, Bible, like holy Bibles. <laughs> like, like Christian Bibles. Like on the table next to us. And, which was weird because I had never seen a Bible in public in L.A. And... <laughs> 
I was shocked. I was really, we were like, what the heck is going on? Um, we thought it was like a cult or something. And so we ended up in, in this conversation with this group of people. And I, you know, it was like, you know, it, a Christian's favorite question to be asked. You know, so what do you guys believe? You know, I, I go, I turn around. I'm like, so are you guys Christians? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, well, what do you believe? What's the gospel? Because I don't even, I don't even remember. I don't even know what the gospel is. Like, it's been so long. I don't really, under, just tell me what you believe. And they, 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 they explained the gospel. And, and then I got to the $64,000 question at the end of our conversation. I said, well, because they said that they had mentioned they, they, get, they went to this church in Hollywood called Reality LA. And I said, well, what does your church believe about homosexuality? And they said, well, you know, we believe it's a sin and blah, blah, blah. And, and I was kind of surprised and I, I appreciated their frankness about it and I appreciated their honesty. And I, I was surprised I didn't just like walk away and I just kind of was like, hmm. And then at that moment, I was just like, what do I know? I mean, maybe I'm wrong about everything. I could be wrong about, I mean, I, you don't understand. Like, I was like super gay. <laughs> I mean, I, I like... Trust me, like, I went to gay pride parades all the time, like, in New York, San Francisco, L.A. Like, I had many, many boyfriends. I, like, blah, blah, blah. Like, I was very politically gay, too. Like, I was kind of an activist. And, and so, I just, but at that point, I was like, what if I'm wrong? I mean, there's a slim chance I'm wrong. There could be a God. This could be wrong. I, who knows? Like, so, I, they invited me to come to their church the following weekend. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to go. And, um... And so I wake up the next Sunday morning, and it was like I was in a Tesla. It was like somehow like I got to that church <laughs> without driving. I don't know what happened. I just like got in my car, and it just self-drove me to that church. Um, there were no Teslas back in 2009. <laughs> but I get to the church, and I walk in, and there's like worship music playing, and I... Um, Christian music, which was weird for me, because it was the first time I had heard that since I, I don't know, since I was a kid, I guess. But, and then I find a seat and the preacher comes out and he, the pastor comes out and he preaches on Romans chapter seven for an hour. And it was, I just remember just being gripped by the sermon. And I was like, I don't know what he's saying, but it's true. And I don't know why I think that. And I was on the edge of my seat the entire sermon and I was like, oh my gosh, what's happening? Like, everything he's saying is true. And it was the gospel. He was, he was like preaching the gospel, and it was like, this is, this is true. And I don't know why. And he finishes the sermon. I go to the side. Uh, I, there's like a prayer ministry on the side of the church after the sermon. And I went over, and this guy prayed for me. And then, I came, um, th- then there's worship music for another half hour. So I come back to my seat. I'm processing the sermon, the prayer, the music, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit's like, <laughs> like, just overwhelms me. And it's like Paul, it was like Paul on the road to Damascus. It was just like, bam, like, and God revealed himself to me in that moment. And he said, he was just like, I'm God, Jesus is my son, the Bible's true, heaven is real, hell is real, you're reconciled to me now, you're now in my kingdom. I've adopted you and you're my child. And I was just like, 
oh my gosh. And I just started bawling and bawling and bawling and bawling. And I was crying over like meeting the joy. I was, it was like joy and sorrow. I was crying over meeting God, the king of the universe, and also over my sin. It was like Isaiah in the temple when he sees the holiness of God and comes undone. That's how I felt. And I was just like crying and crying harder than I've ever cried in my life. And I couldn't stop. It was uncontrollable for like 25 minutes. And then I got home after church and the same thing happened again. It was like, I was like Moses in the cleft of the rock. God just was like, like passed by the cleft and it's with his glory. And it just, again, I was like overwhelmed with God. And I was like, whoa. And I jumped out of bed and I was like, God, you have my life. You have everything I've done, like everything. And I knew, I knew in that moment that homosexual, I was like, that's done. Like that's my old, that's not even who I am anymore. And that's gone. It's done. Yeah. And that was it. Can we give a clap offering to the Lord? <laughs> that's just amazing. Praise God. I mean, yeah. Yeah, amen. What an incredible testimony. Um, and thank you so much for sharing so vulnerably and honestly with us. And um, at this time, I have a few questions that I want to ask Beckett um, with regards to not only his story, but the topic of homosexuality and the church. And uh, I wonder, and when I first you know, heard your testimony, I'm sure there are many people wondering the same question. When that moment happened in 2009, when, when you met Christ for the first time, when you entered a relationship with him, what, what happened to your homosexuality? Did that, like, are you straight now? Like, how does that work? Well, no, I mean, well, I, no. I mean, I, um, I still struggle with same-sex attraction. Like, that didn't fully... I mean, God had amazing grace on me that day in terms of that, too, because if, like, the day before, if, if um, you know, I my thought life was very dominated by sexuality. And my friends and I, we always just like, we, it was like a very prevalent. It was a, we talked about it all the time. We just talked about like, who are you dating? Oh my gosh. Like, and um, it was always kind of the, the dominant thought in my mind. But after that day, it became very super minimal. And I, um, it doesn't, the, that doesn't dominate my thought life. It doesn't dominate my, my I don't think, of, I really don't think about it. Like rarely do, and, and, until you bring it up. That's what I think about. Um, yeah. But I, yeah, it, so I, 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 but I still struggle. I still have kind of same sex desire, but it's very much diminished. And um, by the grace of God, it's very diminished and very, just I don't really think about it, but I'm not like cured um, but it does, it's not, I, I don't, that's not, my identity is not in that. It's like my identity is in Christ and, um, it, I'm happy to be celibate for the rest of my life. I, I, I mean, I just, I have a relationship with, with Jesus and the King of the universe. So like, I don't, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not full. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not attracted to women, but that God could change that in a split second, but I don't. It doesn't matter. It's it's not. It's a moot point to me because I'm. I have this incredible relationship with Christ. Yeah, and you mentioned that you know you still have the same sex attraction that God in His grace has really helped you with that uh, mm-hmm. as you're wrestling with it, and that in light of your identity as a Christian, as a Christ follower, you choose to be celibate. But I wonder if one can ask, then, isn't that unfair? 
You know, for you to have to be single, for you to have to be celibate for the rest of your life, isn't that unjust for you to live that way? <laughs> well, I mean, I get, it's funny because I get that question a lot of, or is it, uh, people say that. They, the first, I mean, and I, I get it because I was there and that was my first question when I met Christians. I'm like, um, but what, it's like I've, I don't ever see it as unfair to be single for the rest of my life. I mean, Paul says it's better to be single in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, but by the way, Paul was single. Jesus was single. Jesus was single, Paul was single. All Paul cared about, he was running around the Mediterranean planting churches, being like jailed and beaten and like shipwrecked. And all he cared about was like the gospel getting out and planting churches. Mm. Like it wasn't about like, oh, my life is unfair. Like I need like a relationship and I have to have a house with a car. You know, it's like, (laughs) no, like that's, and um, but but what's really unfair is that Christ had to be, beaten, crucified, murdered for my sin. That's unfair. And what's, you know, I, I feel, again, I just feel like the most, and I mean, obviously luck is like a weird word, but I feel like the luckiest guy in the world that God just plucked me out of darkness and into light and gave, just gave me mm. eternal life and, and reconciled me to himself. And that's, I just, I never see myself as being cheated out of anything. I feel quite the opposite. I feel like I, I just, uh, yeah, gained, you know, I gained this relationship with Christ, and it's amazing. Yeah, and as you reference Paul, I'm reminded of Philippians 3, where he says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And yeah. really, it's amazing to see you embody that scriptural passage in your sacrifice that you give up so willingly because of the surpassing worth of Christ. But you know, we live in an era, um, as many sociologists would call, a post-Christian era now. And um, a lot of what's being said, especially outside the walls of the church, and sometimes even inside some churches, is that we should just embrace who we are. That maybe you're born gay. I mean, Bang talked about we're unsure about the roots or whatnot. But either way, this is just who you are. This is how you feel. Accept your feelings. Validate your feelings. And just Go with your heart, right? Shouldn't that be the way we should live? What would, what would you say to something that's, like a, that? that's a terrible way to live, um, <laughs> to just go with your heart. Right, our hearts question. are deceitful and wicked. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, that's the, you know, uh, the, our culture around us doesn't accept the fall. Most uh, the, the post-Christian culture doesn't accept that there's a fall mm-hmm. and that we're evil, um, that we're born, born with original sin. Um, and so that, uh, yeah, I just, I just lost my train of thought. But yeah, we, I think we, um, I totally lost my train. Wait, but with the, the fall, I mean, I think maybe something to address here is that you're right. In this world, we don't believe in the fall, right? The most population doesn't believe that there is original sin, that there is someone out there who's there to deceive, to lie to us. And that we could just accept our hearts and our feelings as truth. Yeah, and and that's the thing. It's like follow your heart. I just I I was at a restaurant and this woman was wearing a, a t-shirt that said "fall." She was wearing a sweater and it said "follow your heart" on it. And um, I I was <laughs> asked the waiter, my waiter. I was like, "Hey, you know the hostess over there? Like, 
Um, she, what do you, what does it say on her shirt, on her sweater? And it, he said, follow your heart? I said, yeah. I, I was like, do you think that's good advice, bad advice, or neutral advice? And he's like, huh. He had never thought of it. And he's like, uh, I would guess, I would just have to say it was neutral advice. And I was like, no, it's terrible advice. <laughs> it's terrible advice. Like, Hitler followed his heart. Stalin followed his heart. Like, like it's, it's bad. It's like the man in the high castle. Don't follow your heart. Um, so, yeah, I just think that's, a, that's a, um, a thing that our culture is obsessed with. And even in kids' movies and every, every movie, it's all about, like, just be who you are. Follow your heart. And it's like, yeah, but if we all did that, we, I mean, it's, it leads to so much destruction destruction and destructive behavior. And in my case, I followed my heart, mm. and it led to very destructive behavior. Yeah. yeah. I'm reminded, as Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful. Who can understand its ways, right? Yeah. And it's, this is exactly why we need scriptural truths, as our series is talking about, on cultural opinions. This is exactly why we need the authority and the absolute truth of God as the plumb line, so to speak, yeah. of yeah, yeah. what it means to walk in the right path. Um, so then, as a Christian... You know, but who lived a gay lifestyle, who identified at one point to be gay. Can you be both gay and Christian? That's a complex question. Mm. How much time do we have? Um, Not much. <laughs> uh, you, okay, so, yeah, I mean, people say that sometimes. People sometimes call themselves a gay Christian. Or, but I, I would never call myself a gay Christian because... Mm. Get the the idea of the identity of gay is my old man, my old self, and that died when I was uh, when I was saved, and so I don't I don't um, I don't uh, call myself a gay Christian, and I but if there's two there's three different or two different ways to look at it, and one or uh, Steve mentioned this too, but mm-hmm. one of them is. Um, yes, you can have gay or you can have homosexual same-sex attraction kind of orientation and be a follower of Christ and, be, and deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Christ and be celibate or, or whatever. Or God can change your attraction you know, to the opposite sex. Um, but the idea of being, the idea of practicing homosexual behavior and being a Christian doesn't work mm-hmm. and biblically it, it doesn't it's like first john what's the verse in first john first about john, chapter uh, one yeah. yeah chapter one it's like you um you can't you can't walk in the darkness and profess to be yes exactly right. okay yeah. so it's it's like that it's to be practicing and that's that's the issue with the trouble with this particular sin is it's become a, it's become an identity and um, so there's like gay pride parades, but not gossip pride parades. And so because it's a, such a strong identity, it's really hard to right. unravel that and right. to kind of separate that from the, the person. Yeah. And so um, it's, uh, it's hard to, yeah, it's, that's a very difficult thing to do. But, uh, but ultimately, yeah, you can, I, you can't, you can't continue and that's the other thing is like if you are identifying as a as a gay person and that's your full identity 
you never have, and you're, you're a Christian, you, don't, you never have the chance to repent because you don't think what you're, what you're doing is wrong. Right. So there's no repentance. Right. And so you're just living a life in this kind of constant state of sin. Yeah. And so that, that's why you, and you can't be a gay Christian in my, in my view. That's, yeah. that's how I would unpack it. Yeah. I think it's definitely something that is a very, it's almost a misnomer in and of itself to ask it that way. And, and being talked about that in a sermon that homosexuality is used almost as an umbrella term when it shouldn't be, but rather a Christian can struggle with same-sex attraction. Right. A Christian can yeah. deny themselves, take up the cross, as you said, but to have two irreconcilable identities would be a paradox. It wouldn't work. In yeah. Itself. yeah. Um, if I could ask you maybe a much more practical question. Um, as we sit here today before a family of Christ, before many believers here, what advice would you have for them in reaching out to the LGBTQ community or those struggling with same-sex attraction? How, how can we as believers, as followers of Christ, speak truth yet in love? Um, well, I, I would just use the example of my sister-in-law who was kind of, for me, the, the greatest example of a, a Christian in my life. And she was an evangelical Christian, and she lives in Dallas. And every time I would go to Dallas to to visit for the holidays, she would be super anxious to get together with me and have coffee and wanted to hang out. And we had this great relationship and she was super, she's super fun. And, um, and we would get together, have coffee. She would talk about God. I would talk about guys. And (laughs) she never, you know, she never like got her Bible out and like said, you know, Beckett, you're still sinning. Cause like, look here, it says that. She never did that once to me. Yeah. And she, she already knew that I knew what she believed. So she, there was no need for her to reiterate what her beliefs were. I knew them. Mm-hmm. And um, so all she did was love me generous, generously and, and, and lavishly. Mm-hmm. Even when I was in a relationship with a guy, she didn't like kind of pull back her love, you know, mm-hmm. or like withdraw a little bit. Like she just loved me. Yeah. Super generously, and then instead of quoting a Bible verse, mm-hmm. she did something far more dangerous. She prayed for me for 20 years, mm-hmm. and she uh, prayed and fasted for, for me for many, many years. I think it was one, there was one verse in particular, and I can't think of it now, but um, she prayed over, and, and God answered her prayer. 20 years later. (laughs) That's amazing. I think oftentimes it's easy for us to forget we have one of the most powerful and, as you said, dangerous tools to employ, which is prayer. And God does hear our prayers. Um, What would you say to someone in here right now who could be struggling with same-sex attraction? Well, first of all, I would say, you know, to... uh, to, if you're struggling with that and you haven't talked about it to anyone, I would talk about it with someone you trust, and whether it's a pastor or someone else in the church or whomever, your parents or your family member. But talk about it because when, you're, when it's all just hidden inside, it's like in darkness, and that's where Satan loves to work the most. And when you expose it and you kind of, and, and the body of Christ can come around you and bear your burden with you and yeah. pray for you and help you and, and you know, be there, be a support system for you. Yeah. Like, I think that's really important. So I think 
basically coming out to your church is, is like, is, a, is really crucial. Mm. Yeah. Well, Becca, thank you so much. You know, there are so many other questions I'd like to ask this morning, but for the sake of time, um, we'll have to end it here. But if any of you guys uh, would want to reach out to him or get to know his story more, um, he does have a website. Uh, if we could put that up, beckettcook.com, B-E-C-K-E-T-C-O-O-K.com. And you can go on that to stay in touch. Um, yeah, I think as I just sit here with you and hear these words of wisdom from you and the gospel, I'm reminded of what Pastor Michael told us at the All Church Retreat, that we need to create a safe space, that that is something we as Christians need to do. And as you ended with just telling someone about your mm. struggles, that you don't want to hide in the darkness. That is my hope for myself and our church, that we could be a community of believers that speaks truth in love, that has a safe Christ-centered space for whatever struggles people are going through, whether it's same-sex attraction or any other sin. Um, If I could just close this time in prayer, if you guys would bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing love and your grace that truly you are writing and have been writing an incredible story of redemption from before creation, even until now and forever. And God, we are simply recipients of that undeserved mercy and grace. And I thank you so much for how you have moved within each and every one of our lives, how you have moved particularly in Beckett's life back in 2009, but even the mile markers leading up to that moment where he was adopted into your family. And for each and every one of us, I pray that whether we have already been adopted into your family or yet to be, that we would experience and be engaged in that story of redemption that we would learn to embrace those who are struggling in sin, those particularly struggling with homosexuality or same-sex attraction. That, Father, we'd be a place that we could be vessels of your light, that we could be ambassadors for your name, Jesus, that we would stand for your truth but not be afraid to embrace those who need you. So thank you for this reminder this morning. Would you continue to speak words of wisdom and would we now respond with worship and praise to your almighty name. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.